Well, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, or sorry, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, uh, turning in this portion of God's Word. Again, we embarked on this study on Christian ethics, I suppose, uh, not quite uh, about 18 months ago or thereabouts, but less. Uh, and I have to say that in uh, looking ahead to the entire study, I think this was the subject that I feared dealing with the most. It is the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I understand, and we'll say more in a minute too, that it is a very contentious subject in churches. Uh, I know there are different opinions within our own fellowship here. And so my desire is to try to deal with this sensitively and carefully and in a manner that would uh, not bring division, but would help us to see the mind of God and also understand that people within the fellowship may differ in their opinions in this matter uh, throughout the centuries, even going back to Deuteronomy 24. There has been many differences of opinions in this area. So please, may God help us. May we have a humble spirit. And may God give us the grace to understand his will in these days. So it's Matthew chapter 19. And let's read together from the verse number 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh." What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto them, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Amen. May God be pleased to again grant us grace and wisdom as we consider this matter uh, together. When you think about this issue of divorce, I think we should first acknowledge that it is a matter that exists under state authority. Now, I mention that because we're going to look at the way things have changed in this nation over the last number of decades. There can be the situation where two believers in the church go through a divorce and the church knows nothing about it. And so we have to understand, we wrestle with this in the context of what happens in the, in the state and in the laws of the state in which we live, namely Pennsylvania. And you will know that those state laws will vary, even across this nation, the 50 states, there'll be a variation in the divorce laws in the state. And so I just mentioned that uh, by way of uh, a reminder at the start of this talk. It's also worth noting this is a matter debated fiercely in the church. I've already said this. Uh, I was converted when I was 16. I joined the church, my Baptist church, when I was 17. Um, my first awareness of controversy in church was on the issue of divorce and remarriage. I remember sitting as a young believer, really just amazed at the strength, the feeling there was in the church regarding the remarriage of an individual in the church Again, the Baptist Church, Congregational Government, 
the discussion was held in open forum, and there were people literally, you know, bulging, bulging neck veins as they fought with each other about this particular matter. And I'm kind of sitting there going, okay, these issues are very important, but there were two people, of course, the people who were getting married, who were under the scrutiny of that very contentious debate. And I think from that, it's definitely, I would say, it's definitely affected my view and even how to teach this. I am very painfully aware of how much division this can cause in the church. And just in private conversation with you all over the last number of years, I realize there's a variety of opinions within our own fellowship. And I think that variety should be acknowledged and respected. This is a difficult issue. And one of the reasons I come here with fear and trembling today is that I don't have all the answers, particularly regarding Deuteronomy 24. I think there's some very, very difficult things to understand in that portion, whereby that's the portion, by the way, uh, that the people are acknowledging, verse number 7, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, they're acknowledging that in verse number 7. Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorce? And that's Deuteronomy chapter 24. There are those who say divorce never. There should never, ever be divorce. At the very most, there may be separation, but divorce is never, ever permitted. Others say there may be divorce, but no remarriage. Others will say divorce is permitted with remarriage on very limited grounds. Others yet will say divorce and remarriage is more broadly allowed. I think there's, again, even within those four main ideas, there's variation of understanding, but I think those are the four prominent ideas in evangelical circles regarding the issue of divorce and remarriage. I'm going to try to work through some of these issues. I'm going to ask for humility and also compassion. I realize this affects individuals personally. But yet, when I thought about it, I thought, well, I can't ignore this topic. There'd be a huge hole in the subject of Christian ethics and family ethics if it was not acknowledged. It would seem a very incomplete study. And if nothing else, I think our young people must be made aware of these issues. If nothing else, that they enter marriage with the absolute determination to stay married for the rest of their lives. If they understand this issue, perhaps it may encourage young people in that regard. And so we all need to understand the various opinions and seek to be respectful. The third thing by way of introduction is that this issue of divorce is a measure in our society of a society turning from the Lord. Divorce is tragic. And the language in our text certainly makes it clear that divorce occurs in this world due to sin. So divorce comes after the fall. And the Lord says, from the beginning, it was not so. So divorce itself is a manifestation of sin. And as divorce increases, therefore, there is the sense of an increasing manifestation of sin in society. Now, this clearly, of course, is an opinion. I'm suggesting that the divorce rates picture societies turning from God's. But it's an opinion, I think, that does carry weight. In the 1960s and probably before, there was a push for what began to be known as no-fault divorce. Fault divorces. Fault divorces used to be the only way to break a marriage. And people who had differences but did not qualify as being at fault only had the option to separate and were prevented by law in the state from legally remarrying. 
That was the law. Only fault divorces were permitted. But under a no-fault divorce system, the dissolution of a marriage does not require an allegation or proof of fault by either party. Now here, how that works out in practice will vary from state to state. What qualifies as a fault or what qualifies as, uh, as, a, as a reason for divorce will vary. And how uh, other factors will also vary from state to state. But in many places, the no-fault grounds for divorce will include things like incompatibility. Or the term known as irreconcilable differences. And even the irremediable breakdown of the marriage. Those are things that are used, those languages used, that language used in various state laws. So actually worth noting only three states, Mississippi, South Dakota and Tennessee, require mutual consent for a no-fault divorce to be passed. And so you see how these vary from place to place. When you look at the chart, again, I, I borrowed this chart. I find this, and I think it's a helpful uh, chart. You'll just see squiggly lines for now. But what you're seeing there is the rates of marriage and divorce in the U.S. in a given year from 1860s through to 2010. And you're seeing the tracking there. The top line is the rate of marriage per 1,000 people per year. So you're sitting in around a baseline of around 10 per 1,000 people per year uh, getting married. And the divorce rate's almost zero uh, in the early days, climbing to a peak of about 5 per 1,000 people. Now, what I want you to notice is the, sp- the spikes. Okay, so you get a spike in marriage at the end of World War II. Understandably, again, there were those who were separated from a time, and, and now suddenly the war, the war is over, and there's a spike in marriage rates. You'll see a depression in marriage rates can coincide with the Great Depression. Again, an interesting feature also. Then you've got again another spike, World War II. Sorry, I may have said World War I's the first one, World War II is the second one, another spike in marriage rates again uh, for the same reasons. But look at the spike in divorce. So the orange line, you see a spike in the divorces from 1960 through to about 1980. And that tracks exactly the increase of passing of legislation for no-fault divorce across the states. And so as divorce becomes more easy, people then engage and they have divorces. Now you might think, well, look at the decline in the orange line from 1980 through to 2010. There's a decline in divorce rates. But that's not a good thing. Because that tracks the decline in marriage rates. And so fewer marriages, fewer divorces. So the bottom or the far end of the line is actually a manifestation that things are even worse. Because people are cohabiting, separating very easily, and there's no sense of biblical marriage. And so I do think you can see, and my my point was made, it is a measure of a society turning from the Lord. So with those things in mind, just a way of introduction... I need to turn your attention to our own confessional standards. Again, you know within our denomination, uh, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in chapter 24, paragraphs 5 and 6, there are paragraphs that deal with the issue of divorce and remarriage explicitly. Now, here you've got to understand a couple of things. For these things to be included in the confession, there had to be substantial agreement among the divines who met at that time. It's also worth noting uh, there is agreement between Presbyterians, Carnegationalists, and Baptists on this area at that time. It doesn't mean that everybody held the same view, but there was sufficient consensus to include these things in our confession. And in paragraph 5 it says this, In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue a divorce, 
and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Just giving you this language of our confession of faith at this present time. And we subscribe this as ministers and elders. And as a congregation, we are part of a denomination that subscribes to this confession. Paragraph 6 also then says, Although the corruption of man be such as that to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God had joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. And though in paragraph 6 they add the second clause, so there are these two clauses in our confession of faith whereby the divines permitted divorce and remarriage. The clause of adultery after marriage and also desertion. Those are the two things that were given by the divines in writing our confession of faith. Now I realize this is a man-made document. We acknowledge that. But at the same time, it is the document that we subscribe to as a confession of our faith. And it is a very significant thing to vary from the confession if that is our mind. You've got to be very clear in the reasons whereby you may differ from the confession in this regard. And so let's get into some of the scriptural language that's used in, in our confession. Of course, the issue of adultery is in the portion we just read together, Matthew chapter 19. You have there, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. It's known as the exception clause, permitting divorce and remarriage. It repeats also what the Lord has taught in Matthew chapter 5. Turn back there. It's helpful to see because in Matthew chapter 5, we're in the section in the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord is clarifying and correcting false thinking by the Jewish authorities at that time. You've got verse number 27, for example. You have heard that it is said of them at all time, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he emphasizes that the language there is not simply external, but is internal. But then you go down to verse number 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Well, again, it's Deuteronomy 24, the language of Moses. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, cause a third to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her, that is divorce, committeth adultery. Now you will see that the Lord is not in any of these statements denying the first statement. He's making the point that the first statement has been misunderstood. And here you'll see what's happening here. It has been said, let, her, let him give her a writing of divorcement. And there is no mention of the rest of the text regarding that to be for the cause of uncleanness, as we'll see it in Deuteronomy 24. So the Lord is making the point. He's adding the emphasis. It is saving for the cause of fornication. I haven't began to deal with the issue, what is this fornication or anything else? I'm just simply looking at the text at this time. And before you prejudge my mind, I have tremendous sympathy, by the way, for those who hold to divorce never as their position. Confessionally, our denomination teaches what it teaches. I'm going to demonstrate that today. Uh, But I do fully accept those who differ from us in this position. And please, I do not want to divide on the subject. And so you have this idea of the exception clause. Now, 
The exception clause means that something is permissible for what is contained in the exception. You think here, okay? So rub your eyes and get going. It's 10.24 on a Sunday morning. But you've got to think this through. Dr. Allison, uh, when I was teaching this course in our seminary, I, I found a lot of Dr. Allison's old notes, and he used the illustration that was pertinent to me. You cannot be president of the U.S. except you're born a citizen of the U.S. I can never be president. Sorry, folks. It's not possible. Okay, but the exception implies the positive. So you cannot be president except you're born in the U.S., meaning if you're born in the U.S., then you can be president. Okay, so that's how you understand the exception clause here, that in the exception, there is thereby implied permission against the negative. So the negative in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 is no divorce. If there's divorce and remarriage, it's adultery. But the exception clause then says, unless or except for this reason. And this reason, there is thereby permission for divorce and remarriage. That's the general understanding of that text in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. Again, I haven't begun to discuss what that all means, but let me make some, some things very, very clear. First of all, please note that in this text, and this, we're back at Matthew 19, by the way, because it's important. Matthew 19, the Lord is teaching the permanence of marriage. And he is denying easy divorce. Both here in Matthew 19 and in the parallel in Mark chapter 10, he goes back to marriage as a creation ordinance where we started this whole series. We're in creation before the fall. What it was in the beginning, he made them male and female, a man shall leave father and mother, and what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so he's emphasizing again the permanence of marriage and denying easy divorce. Now, what you need to understand, and this is very important historically, and there's clear documentation of this in Jewish writings. In the various rabbinical schools, so the people who were experts in the law, there were two prominent schools. There was a school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And they had different views regarding the nature of divorce. Shammai's were very strict, the Pharisees and the Hillel school were much more lax. And they were saying it is lawful for a man to put away his wife almost for anything. Too much salt in the food. Spoiling dinner. Those things were excuses and reasons for divorce. If you want to look at this, uh, John Gill in his commentaries on Deuteronomy and in Matthew gives some insight into the historical background of some of these things. And so that's what the Lord is dealing with here. The Pharisees are coming to the Lord and saying, well, what, what side are you on? Are you this or are you that? You're a rabbi, but we're not sure. Do you stand with us or against us? And they ask this question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And the Lord, in answering that, says, no. Marriage is permanent. One man, one woman for life. And then they, they follow it up and say, well then, why did Moses write this in Deuteronomy chapter 24? And the Lord says, because of the hardness of your hearts. And then he then gives this exception clause. And so he taught the divorce was a temporary concession to human sin. Again, there are some who believe that there was such a prevalence of divorce in the time of the Exodus, and that this was 
part of God's concession, not excusing it, not promoting it, but in a sense the Lord bringing in place a law that allowed society to progress in this regard. Certainly, if there is a false reason for divorce in the Lord's language, then remarriage is indeed adultery. So if the reason for remarriage is not this, then there is cause to claim that the remarriage is adulterous. This is difficult. Again, one of the ways in which the Lord's people may be asked to carry their cross is they may find themselves involved in a divorce and they want to remarry, but they've got to come to terms with the fact that divorce was not legitimate and therefore they should not remarry. It's a difficult pathway to walk, but it may well be what God calls some people to do. And so the issue here is that according to the Lord, divorce is permitted only due to fornication, which leads to the obvious question. What is this matter of fornication? How do we understand this? And here I must be honest. I am not entirely sure the extent of this particular clause. And I say that because I find it very difficult to understand exactly what is meant in Deuteronomy chapter 24. One thing I do believe is that here in Matthew 19, the Lord is showing us that Deuteronomy 24 still applies. And I say unto you, he's not denying it. He is explaining it. And so Deuteronomy 24 as a principle still applies today, even though we're not under Jewish civil law. And so the application of it is still applicable But Deuteronomy 24 is difficult, and we'll see that in a couple of moments. First of all, there are those who suggest that the immorality involved here is immorality prior to marriage as we understand it. And they look at this in the context of Matthew's gospel. And this is why I have sympathy. In Matthew's gospel, we saw recently that Joseph was minded to put away his wife Mary because he perceived that she was guilty of fornication prior to marriage. They say that fornication is a term that is generally used for sexual immorality in a very broad sense. And if it was marriage in view here, the Lord could have used the word adultery. But he doesn't. In counterbalance to that, the word fornication is used because it is the most appropriate translation of the word in Hebrew for uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24. So it doesn't win the argument either way, but it is uh, worth noting. And so they suggest that what's in view here is you have a couple and they're engaged to be married. And because of the binding nature of that covenant in those days, well, therefore it required a putting away. And so this refers to putting away someone prior to actually getting married. Others say, no, Immorality, in a very broad sense, constitutes grounds for divorce. Fornication is a very broad word and involves all manner of sexual immorality. And they say, yes, well, therefore, there's a broadness to the exception clause here in Matthew chapter 19. The challenge is, for those who suggest that this does not involve marriage as we understand it, Deuteronomy 24 certainly does involve marriage as we understand it. And so you cannot put into Deuteronomy 24 the illustration of Joseph and Mary. So turn back to Deuteronomy 24. And here, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to illustrate how difficult this is. And therefore, the reason whereby I plead with you all 
to be gracious and compassionate as we seek to, at times as a church, pastorally work through some of these issues. Deuteronomy 24 is the clause that's used here. Verse 1, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Here, this is, you know, the breadth of the application here is significant. That this divorcement dissolved the marriage, and either party could then remarry. Verse number three says this, And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled, for that, that is abomination before the Lord. Thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, if you understand the Old Testament, there are many, many things that are tremendously perplexing. And I tell you, out of this passage, there were two separate schools of rabbinical thought. So clearly, the application was contested very, very early on in Jewish history. The uncleanness here, many would suggest, must be something that falls short of adultery. Because in Deuteronomy 22, those found in adultery were to be stoned. So what does it mean then? What is this uncleanness? The word itself is translated almost consistently as referring to immoral behavior. It's the word that is often translated with the word nakedness in the King James Version. And it's used that way in Leviticus chapter 18, which gives a number of things in which this uncleanness manifests itself in sexual immorality. And so it's a very broad word referring to immorality in various ways. But the idea that it refers to bad cooking is clearly not involved in the word. And so the Lord is dealing with the errors of the idea that this allows for divorce for any cause. He's dealing with that. No, that's not it. And he used the word fornication to explain the uncleanness here in Deuteronomy 24. It may be that this is a provision of God to allow for divorce which would then have a similar weight to the judicial act of stoning. So rather than stoning those committing adultery, divorce dissolved the marriage in the same way that death would do the same. Again, I'm just giving you possible interpretations and telling you I'm really, I, I lack certainty in my own mind as to what these things mean. I don't know if that distresses you or not, but that's the fact. I'm not absolutely convinced what these words mean. So, we find ourselves in a difficult situation. But what I do think Deuteronomy 24 does prove is that the application in Matthew 19 is not dealing with something before marriage as we understand it. But it's dealing with marriage and remarriage in the legal sense of covenant that the man becomes her husband and she becomes his wife. Hence, the general understanding in Reformed thought is that Matthew 19 does relate to marriage 
And then for some cause, divorce, and then remarriage permits it. I say there are those in the fundamentalist and reformed camp who take a different position. They see it differently, and that's, that's fine. They argue for it strongly. I'm just trying to give you the idea that there are this complexity of the idea. One of the things the no divorce people mention strongly is that Christ never divorces his church. So one of the strongest arguments is, well, Christ never divorces his church. And so those who say that, I say to those men, well, don't divorce your wife then. Don't divorce your wife. You're right. Christ, the perfect husband, never divorces. Divorces due to sin. Christ is never involved in sin. And Christ, by his almighty power, has the ability to win the bride back. The adulterous bride is won back. And so it's a strong argument for the permanence of marriage, but it doesn't actually remove the exception clause of Matthew 19. Christ, the perfect groom, who never divorces his bride, we praise his name. We deserve to be divorced from Christ, don't we? We commit such spiritual fornication so many times. We deserve that, but Christ is committed to us wholeheartedly. Our time is marching on. I'm trying to just summarize this. I don't want to leave things sort of unsaid today. You've also got to deal with the second issue in our confession of faith, which is the issue of desertion. So turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is where the desertion clause come, comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You have there the verse number 12. But to the rest I speak I, not the Lord. And just in passing on that, what Paul is saying here, he's not saying he's speaking with less authority. He's the apostle of the Lord. We dealt with that in our studies in Timothy some weeks ago. What he's saying here is the Lord did not explicitly address this issue of a believer and an unbeliever in the same house. The Lord didn't deal with that. He dealt with two Jewish people in the context of the Old Testament law. And so Paul is now giving Christ's application of marriage to the New Testament church. What does it look like? Well, I, I speak I, not the Lord. If any brother have a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Now it's the issue of not being under bondage when the unbeliever departs. I'm going to say right now, I think this desertion issue is applied way, way, way too liberally. This is dealing with a very particular situation where there are two unbelievers. One is converted and one cannot stand to live in the house with the believer. And so they leave the house. It's a very particular circumstance. Desertion of an unbeliever from a believing spouse. And in such a case... The believer was not to see themselves as being bound, either brother or sister, in such a case. Now, what you're seeing there in that bondage is dealt with in the text itself. Look at verse number 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married. 
And so not bound is the same as being at liberty as if it was through the spouse's death. Hence, the Reformed thought was, this is another reason for allowing remarriage. The same language used in verse 27, Art thou bound unto your wife? Seek not to be loosed. There's a few things that are, that's very, very important. A mixed marriage is not grounds for divorce. So you find yourself in mixed marriage, you do not have grounds for divorce on that regard. Rather, you're to give yourselves for the benefit, for the sanctification of your unbelieving spouse. But our confession of faith understood this as to be a clause permitting divorce and remarriage. And so giving all of the uncertainty, and I've given, you, I've given my own uh, personal difficulty, my approach is when dealing with an individual situation, I seek to discern that carefully involving counsel from others. This is difficult, and I do not deal with divorce and remarriage on my own. I think there are too many complex issues, and I'd seek to do so in counsel with other elders and other ministers. But we are confessionally committed to this particular statement. I've given to you already the two reasons for divorce and remarriage in our confession, namely adultery and desertion, those two clauses given for divorce and remarriage. Well, just to close, a few pastoral concerns. It is imperative that in our ministries denominationally, and in our families, we teach and we model permanence. And so if you happen to come to me at some point and you find yourself in some mortal difficulty, I'm telling you right now, my default position will be to do everything I can to help you to reconcile that marriage. That will be my default. The end will be, what can we do to work together to bring about the reconciliation of the marriage for the glory of God and for Christ and His church? And so those... In mortal troubles, I encourage you to exercise Christian patience and endurance, seeking God's grace in a very difficult situation. Marriage, one man, one woman for life, that is God's will for marriage, end off. And so as we find ourselves in our marriages, that must be our understanding, that at the beginning, at the middle, and every bit around all the things, that must be the determination. I will do everything I can by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, to keep in this marriage for the glory of God. Tragically, we saw the chart, and as the world has permitted divorce for almost anything at all, that has come into the church, and the church will find themselves, you'll, you'll hear people discussing this way. Well, do we have to stay married? Do we have to do this? Well, living before God, that should be your determination. Again, are there exception clauses? Well, our confession of faith allows for those two exception clauses. And I think in all things, pray for God to grant us the grace of compassion. Compassion to those who are suffering the effects of mortal failure and troubles, mortal distress presently or in the past. I've talked about the sin of David and the scars that carry, the scars that come from divorce are deep, deep scars. And we must pray for God to give the compassion of Christ to those who suffer such scars. Our time has gone. Folks, I know there are many thoughts out there, I'm sure. I deliberately have not allowed for any discussion or comment today. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to drop me an email. And then I can take the time to discern whether those things are appropriate to deal with in this setting 
or privately, but I did not want an open discussion today, so please understand that. It was a massive forethought, and I trust you understand my reasons for doing so. But may God help us. These are difficult issues, and I trust with the compassion and grace living out for Christ in a difficult and a fallen world. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you we come into your presence with the glorious truth that marriage pictures Christ and his church. And though our marriages fail to manifest Christ and the church clearly, we thank you that Christ does manifest true mortal fidelity. We thank you for our wonderful groom and his faithfulness to us despite our unfaithfulness. The one who's faithful despite all our flaws. Oh, we thank you again that we can worship today, this Lord's Day, we can worship Christ as the glorious, triumphant groom of the church. And we are those who love him, and we pray that our love will be expressed today in our worship. Give us help, give us grace, help us to work through these things carefully. In Jesus' precious name, amen.